Welcome to the iFormerX podcast, where we explore the evidence that informs ambulatory care pharmacy practice. This is Stuart Haynes, and I'm editor-in-chief of the iFormerX website and your host for today's podcast. One of the most important roles that community pharmacists and community pharmacies play in healthcare delivery today is providing access to contraception. Condoms, of course, have been available through pharmacies, well, probably since the Middle Ages. Uh, Not only do condoms prevent pregnancy, but they reduce the spread of sexually transmitted diseases. But more recently, pharmacists have provided access to hormonal contraception, which is now widely available as a form of emergency contraception in all states. And in some states, pharmacists are permitted to provide or prescribe hormonal contraception in an ongoing manner. So it is in this context that the recently published Bridget study was conducted in the United Kingdom, where emergency contraception is widely available through community pharmacies, but where long-term hormonal contraception cannot be prescribed by pharmacists. And here to discuss the Bridget study and its implications in practice are Dr. Ashley Meredith and Dr. Veronica Vernon. Dr. Meredith is a clinical pharmacy specialist in ambulatory care and on faculty with Purdue University College of Pharmacy on the Indianapolis campus. And Dr. Vernon works across town at Butler University and provides care to women at the Indianapolis VA. Both Dr. Meredith and Vernon have a strong interest in women's health. Ashley is no stranger to iFormerX. She's co-authored commentaries and participated in podcasts with us before. And Veronica is an iFormerX first-timer, so I'm delighted to have her join us today. Ashley, Veronica, welcome. Thanks, Stuart. I'm so excited to be back again here today on the podcast and to chat with you about a topic I'm extremely passionate about. Thank you so much, Stuart. Longtime listener, first-time guest, I am thrilled to be here with you and Ashley today. So before we talk about the study that you reviewed in your commentary, I'd like to get a better sense of the practice landscape today in the United States. Emergency contraception has been widely available for about a decade now, and over the past five years, more and more states have authorized pharmacists to prescribe hormonal contraception. Can you give us a brief history lesson about the availability of hormonal contraception through pharmacies and the important role that pharmacists have played in providing access to this effective form of contraception? Of course. Before we dive into the current landscape, I do think it's important to recognize that hormonal contraception has always been available at pharmacies, and pharmacists play a crucial role in education about contraception, whether or not they can independently prescribe a given method. Reducing unintended pregnancy is a public health focus, as noted in Healthy People 2030 Goals, but we also need to remember that many patients need hormonal contraception for other reasons. 19 million patients in the United States live in contraception deserts or places where patients do not have access to a health center to provide them the full range of contraceptive services. Pharmacists can play a key role in expanding access to contraception. In fact, 49 states also allow collaborative practice agreements for pharmacists, which provides perhaps an untapped opportunity for us to manage contraception. 
Looking specifically at emergency contraception, there's three types that are commonly used here in the U.S. So the copper IUD is one of them, which obviously wouldn't be inserted by a pharmacist, but a pharmacist can certainly counsel on that as an option and make appropriate community referrals. There's also the levonorgestrel pill, which is available as an over-the-counter product, and then ulipristal acetate, which is prescription only. What we've seen over time since the mid-90s is that the use of emergency contraception has increased dramatically from about 1% of the population to more than 10% of women reporting use. And almost 25% of women between the ages of 20 and 24 have used emergency contraception at least once. Originally, all emergency contraception was prescription only. And in 2006, the levonorgestrel tablet was approved for OTC use. In 2013, all of the restrictions about OTC use of levonorgestrel were removed, which made it widely available to all people without a prescription. So pharmacies have always been the central access point for emergency contraception dispensing and counseling. Before emergency contraception became available OTC, nine states had passed legislation that allowed emergency contraception prescribing statutes. And while ulipristal acetate was approved for use in 2010, distribution issues have resulted in shortages and slow uptake of use, with few pharmacies unfortunately routinely stocking it. And while it does remain prescription only, seven states do allow pharmacists prescribing of ulipristal acetate. In 2013, not only did we see those restrictions on levonorgestrel go away, we also saw states expanding access to contraception, mainly when California passed a bill permitting pharmacists to furnish or prescribe hormonal contraception outside of collaborative practice agreements. Oregon was the second state to pass legislation, but they were actually the first to implement pharmacist-prescribed hormonal contraception in 2016. Now, we are up to 18 U.S. jurisdictions. That includes 17 states plus Washington, D.C., where pharmacists are allowed to prescribe most self-administered hormonal contraception products. Most states allow pharmacists to do pills, both the combined hormonal contraception and the progestin-only, vaginal rings, the patches, and the depomidroxyprogesterone acetate injection. We know that pharmacist prescribed contraception has had a positive impact on public health. In Oregon, an estimated 51 unintended pregnancies were avoided and $1.6 million was saved to Medicaid. And this was just based off of pharmacist prescribing within the first 24 months after policy implementation. Pharmacists also prescribed 10% of all new oral or transdermal contraception for Medicaid patients during that same time. Time frame in Oregon. And in a study among patients in four states where pharmacists prescribe, patients who utilize pharmacist services were more likely to be uninsured than those who see other clinicians. This shows us that pharmacists truly are filling a gap in care. 
So, Ashley, let's talk about the study you reviewed in your iFormerX commentary. The study is officially entitled, and this is a mouthful, Use of Effective Contraception Following Provision of the Progestin-Only Pill for Women Presenting to Community Pharmacies for Emergency Contraception, Bridget, a Pragmatic Cluster Randomized Crossover Trial. But I'm just going to call it the Bridget study from now on. It was published in The Lancet in November 2020, and we provide a link to that paper on the iFormerX website. And of course, I encourage our members to read the study for themselves. But can you give us a brief summary of the study methods and the results? Sure thing, Stuart. And just like the name, the study methods for Bridget do take quite a bit to digest. So I'm going to try to break it down as simply as possible. So this study took place across 29 pharmacies in the United Kingdom. Each of these pharmacies were selected because they dispensed a high volume of emergency contraception each month, they were located close to a community reproductive health clinic, and they had a private interview area. Each pharmacy served as both a control and intervention site throughout the course of the study. At the time of dispensing emergency contraception, pharmacists were responsible for recruiting participants that were at least 16 years old, not already on another form of hormonal contraception, not on any interacting meds, and were willing to provide follow-up contact information. So when the pharmacies were acting as the control group, the pharmacist simply dispensed the emergency contraception with standard counseling and a recommendation to see their usual provider for any continued contraception they may want. When acting as the intervention group, the pharmacist, in addition to providing the emergency contraception, also provided three free packs of the progestin-only pill, Desogestrel 75 micrograms along with a rapid access card to allow them to access contraception at that local reproductive health clinic. So while pharmacists in the United Kingdom are not able to routinely prescribe hormonal contraception, participating pharmacists were allowed to dispense the progestin-only pill through the creation of a patient group directions. This would be similar to something like a statewide protocol or standing order here in the United States. So the primary outcome of this study was a participant self-report of effective contraception at the four-month follow-up. Researchers do also want to look at the incidence of abortion within 12 months of recruitment and an economic evaluation, but they didn't quite get that far in their analysis yet. So what they had to report was that a total of 636 women were recruited across the 29 pharmacies. At baseline, most participants had a history of prior contraception use, and more than 75% of women in each group had used emergency contraception previously. At the four-month follow-up, more women in the intervention group reported the use of effective contraception compared to the control group. So it was 58.4% in the intervention group compared to about 40.5% in the control group. And these results remain significant, even after adjusting for a variety of other characteristics. And of those reporting contraception use within that intervention group, the progestin-only pill was the most frequently used method, followed by the male condom and combined hormonal contraception. 
Compared to in the control group, male condoms were actually the most popular method reported, followed by those combined hormonal contraceptives. So more than half of the women in the intervention group reported using two to three packs of the pharmacist-provided progestin-only pill. And fewer women also reported additional use of emergency contraception since enrollment. I do think it's important to note that a total of 19 pregnancies occurred across all participants with really no difference between intervention and control groups. The authors concluded that providing a progestin-only pill supply when emergency contraception is received at a community pharmacy can increase the use of effective contraception. So the Bridget study is a quintessential practice-based research study in that the investigators randomized the participating pharmacies, not the patients, but with an interesting twist that the pharmacist who worked in pharmacies that didn't provide the bridge intervention during the initial patient recruitment period were then crossed over and subsequently provided the bridge intervention during the second recruitment period and then vice versa. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this unusual design and any other thoughts you might have on the strengths and weaknesses of the study and its execution? Yeah, Stuart, I, I certainly can appreciate and also have concerns about multiple aspects of the study design. I mean, from the researcher perspective, I think it's kind of brilliant to use the same pharmacies in that crossover design because it certainly decreases the research burden. You only have to recruit half as many participating pharmacies. But I do really think it's interesting. When you look at the recruitment rates, more women participated in arm one of the study compared to arm two. So to me, this raises a couple of questions and concerns. Did pharmacists burnout due to the length of time they were involved in the study lead to a difference in recruitment rates? Also, I mean, if a pharmacy was initially assigned to be the intervention group for arm one, and they truly felt that this was a better standard of care, did they then maybe struggle to provide non-biased counseling and information in ARM2 when they were supposed to be delivering the control service? Along with this, the authors noted that the time it took for recruitment may have been a barrier to participation, which this same barrier of time is often echoed by pharmacists or pharmacies when asked about implementation of hormonal contraception prescribing. We know that the average pharmacist contraception prescribing encounter takes about 20 to 25 minutes to complete, which can feel like quite a long time when you are working in a pharmacy that may be short-staffed, phones are ringing, and patients are waiting to get their prescriptions, particularly if the pharmacist isn't getting reimbursed for the time spent on this patient service, which, in the case of Bridget, they were being compensated by the researchers in the study. I also think that we should note that pharmacists were limited to just issuing a progestin-only pill. This can be a great option for patients, but it could be more impactful if a wider range of options were provided to patients during the study. The particular type of progestin-only pill that was used also must be taken within a 12-hour window each day. That is specific to the UK. We actually don't have that particular version in the United States. 
There's also positives and negatives to this type of approach of only allowing a progestin-only pill. On one hand, it limits the choice for women and patients who need contraception, and we certainly want to allow access to all methods that are appropriate for patients. On the other hand, progestin-only pills are relatively well-tolerated and safe for most patients with very few true contraindications to use. I think it's also a great real-world practice tip that if someone may want a product that can't be prescribed by the pharmacist, the pharmacist can still likely provide them with a supply of progestin-only product as a way to bridge the gap while they explore other options or truly bridge it. I think one of the concerns raised early on about the availability of emergency contraception through community pharmacies was that women would be less likely to seek effective long-term methods of contraception and perhaps less likely to get other recommended healthcare services. Uh, the study at attempted to see if an intervention through a community pharmacy would bridge the gap, but I'm wondering what you think. Should we be adopting a similar model here in North America? Should we continue to advocate for increased access to hormonal contraception through pharmacists? You raise a great point, Stuart. I do think it's important to keep in mind that reducing barriers to obtaining contraception should be our goal. Many groups, including the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, or ACOG, and the American College of Clinical Pharmacy, support over-the-counter access to contraception. When a patient purchases emergency contraception, it is a fantastic opportunity for a pharmacist to initiate a conversation about other forms of contraception. Even in states where pharmacists can prescribe, we can still discuss long-acting reversible contraception, such as IUDs and the implant with patients, in addition to the other options that are available at the pharmacy. Pharmacists are very well positioned to help direct patients to community resources, including Title X clinics and federally qualified health centers, not only for contraceptive care, but also for routine health care and screenings, as we know that many patients presenting to the pharmacy for contraception may not have adequate insurance. We would love to see pharmacists to be able to prescribe contraception in all U.S. jurisdictions, as it just improves access to care. ACOG agrees with this as they updated their over-the-counter access to contraception position statement to say that pharmacist prescribing of contraception is a good next step as we move towards OTC status of contraception. I also think we should note that when creating policies around pharmacist prescribed contraception, it should be as broad as possible, meaning no limitations on the type of contraception that can be prescribed by the pharmacist and also no limitations on the age of the patient. I would love for our colleagues to also work towards developing collaborative practice agreements for contraception and expanding the education they provide patients in states where direct pharmacy access is not yet an option. And I know, Ashley, that's something you are incredibly passionate about as well. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think as Veronica said, you know, pharmacists are simply one more point of access that may be more convenient for some people that are seeking contraception. Outside of Bridget, other research has shown that the majority of women obtaining contraception from a pharmacist have still seen another healthcare provider within the past 12 months. And Bridget found that the majority of women on contraception at the four-month follow-up actually received it from their general practitioner rather than the free reproductive health clinic. 
highlighting the role that pharmacists truly can have in encouraging those recommended routine healthcare follow-ups and screenings as well. So Stuart, clearly both Veronica and I feel really strongly that this is an area that more pharmacists can and should become involved in. Well, Veronica, Ashley, I, I want to thank you both for joining me today and writing the commentary about the Bridget study and about hormonal contraception through community pharmacies prescribed by pharmacists. I think it's clear from your comments. You're passionate about this and pharmacists need to get more involved. It's truly a public health mandate that we need to fulfill, just like providing immunizations. Well, tell us what you think. Only iFormerX members can leave comments and use the interactive features on the site. Any health professional can become a member of iFormerX. Sign up today. It's free. And I think you know this already, but if you are a board-certified ambulatory care pharmacist and would like to earn recertification credit for this program, check out the American Pharmacists Association Evidence-Based Practice Series. Through our partnership with APHA, this commentary and this podcast will be available as part of their board recertification program. So click on the link posted below the commentary on our website to learn more. And lastly, a big shout out to Rob Howe, who is my go-to guy, along with the PGY2 cardiology residents at the West Palm Beach VA for all things related to antiplatelet therapy and coronary artery disease. Not only has Rob written several commentaries about some of the landmark cardiology trials published over the last decade, but he's one of my favorite guests on the podcast because he always has something insightful to say that really puts things in context. So Rob, thank you so much for being an active and engaged iFormerX member, author, and reviewer, and for being a great mentor. Well, until next time, this is Stuart Haynes, editor-in-chief of iFormerX, signing off. Mm-hmm.